Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, how COVID-19 is impacting Native American nations and urban indigenous populations as the COVID-19 rates continue to spike in many Native American nations and major metropolitan areas that have large urban Native American populations. And an update on the Mayan train, a $8 billion, 948-mile high-speed train running through the southern Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, beginning in the heart of Chiapas. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone With 574 federally recognized Native American nations within the United States and as part of the U.S. government's treaty obligations and trust responsibilities to provide adequate health care to Native Americans, I speak with Stacy Bullen. She's a member of the Salt St. Marie Chippewa or Anishinaabe Nation, and she's chief executive officer of the National Indian Health Board, a Washington, D.C.-based organization that works with federally recognized Native American nations that have and operate their own health care system, as well as the Indian Health Services, a federal agency responsible for providing health care to Native American citizens. And now, this is Stacy Bullen providing us an update on how COVID-19 is impacting federally recognized Native American nations and their citizens. First of all, thank you for having me and the National Indian Health Board uh, discuss this today. Pleased to be here. As of June 8th, the Indian Health Service reported uh, nearly 13,500 positive cases, but the numbers are highly uh, likely to be underestimates because case reporting by tribal health programs, which constitutes about two-thirds of the entire Indian health system, are voluntary. As we know, last month the Navajo Nation surpassed New York City for the high, highest COVID-19 infection rates, but we found out that through study at UCLA, Center for American Indian Health Research, that if tribes were treated like states, the top five COVID-19 areas of incidence and prevalence would all be tribal nations, number one of them being Mississippi Choctaw, which nobody would have expected because it's, you never see it in the media. Navajo Nation is number five in the, that top five. Among, among them are two Pueblos and White Mountain Apache. As well, in New Mexico, our people represent roughly 10% of the population, but we account for over 55% of all the COVID cases. And as of June 7th, our people account for nearly 34% of all the COVID-19 cases 
in the state of Wyoming, but we're only 2.9% of the population. Similar statistics are in Montana, where our people are just 6.5% of the state population, but we're 12% of the co- uh, confirmed COVID-19 cases. It's just not, it's not acceptable. And some of the causal factors, and I, I realize that's a loaded question, but some of the causal factors in terms of why there's such a, a lack of infrastructure and resources for indigenous nations and Indian health services to appropriately care and provide the services that are needed for indigenous peoples that are testing positive for COVID-19 or just simply the community members that haven't been tested yet that could possibly be carriers or infected with COVID-19. Well, this is not new. It's just that it's like the branch that's been lying in the field for years and years and when you pull it up and find out what's under it you're shocked but this infrastructure challenge in Indian country this is not new and it is not accidental this is a consequence of hundreds of years of neglect overt interference and suppression of American Indian and Alaska Native people and then the lack of will and action on the part of the federal government to honor the trust responsibility and really fund the native treaty rights and our trust responsibility that we've established in the federal government to provide health care for our people in a way that a mainstream American would be satisfied with. That's not what's happening in Indian country. It's never been happening in Indian country. And the incident of COVID-19 now being upon us simply pulls that branch back. It pulls the veil back. And now all of America can see what we've been living with every day. Your thoughts on the CARES Act and the allocation of funding. And and I I know part of the CARES Act was an allocation of one little over $1 billion for Indian health services. And I recall you testifying or I recall a statement by you earlier in the year saying that even with that funding, it would only increase from 16 cents to 23 cents on every dollar that the U.S. government is obligated to spend as part of its treaty obligations and its trust responsibility to indigenous nations. Your thoughts? Yes, I did say that. And yes, that is true. Uh, Let me talk specifically about COVID-19. Now, let me put this into context. When the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention comes out with a a list of ways to best protect oneself from acquiring COVID-19, the number one thing on that list is wash your hands frequently. Great. If you're 40% of the population of Navajo Nation or 60% of the population in Alaska or other percentages in other areas of Indian country, and you do not have running water in your home, how are you able to enjoy the infrastructure that is already in place before there's an emergency so that you can do the number one thing you need to do to protect yourself? So when I say we're very grateful for the $2.4 billion that have come into the Indian health system in the last four months to help fight COVID-19 for Indian country, we're grateful for the the $220 million that came through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We understand that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has put additional funds into Indian country, $100 million and more just for the healthcare system and to help fight COVID-19. This is all progress. It's all progress and it's all to the good. But that problem that I mentioned about water, that will cost $9 billion to address. That's what we're talking about to make real infrastructure 
um, needed investment in Indian country just to bring our people up to par with what mainstream America expects and what a decent human being living in the 21st century expects. Not the human being being decent, but the um, circumstances under which a human being lives being decent. And that was Stacy Bullen, Chief Executive Officer of the National Indian Health Board, a Washington, D.C.-based organization working with Native American health care facilities and Indian health services. She's speaking on how COVID-19 is impacting Native American nations and how the U.S. government's chronic failure at its trust responsibilities and Indian health services makes it difficult for Native American health facilities and Indian Health Services to provide the adequate health care required during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. With approximately two-thirds to three-fourths of all Native Americans living in urban metropolitan areas, urban Indian organizations, and urban Indian health facilities are absolutely crucial and vital organs for the larger Native American population, where they provide not only health care, but forms of social, cultural, and economic assistance for the larger urban Native American populations. In the next segment here on American Indian Airwaves, I speak with Frances Crevier. She's from the Algonquian First Nations, and she's executive director of the National Council of Urban Indian Health, which represents 74 urban indigenous health care facilities. This is Frances Crevier and how COVID-19 is impacting Native Americans in urban metropolitan areas. Let's go back to H1N1. During H1N1, um, natives were 4.1 times more likely to die of H1N1 than the than you know white Americans. And so we know that due to um, chronic health conditions that you know the CDC identifies as risk factors such as you know diabetes, asthma, respiratory infections, coronary heart disease. Some of those health conditions are risk factors for, and you know, that'll make it more susceptible to get COVID-19. And so we're seeing that very true, but we also know that natives are largely underreported based on the way that the government collects data to begin with. And so we won't have true numbers, but we do know based on a lot of these other data points that it will be hitting us much harder and, you know, due to chronic underfunding and lack of access to healthcare as well, you know, it just makes for the perfect storm for something like COVID-19 to really impact us. Francis, Congress recently passed the CARES Act, which only allocated $100 million for urban indigenous organizations. And your thoughts on that? And what are some of the additional critical infrastructural resources that are needed for urban indigenous organizations in order to provide the necessary services during this COVID-19 compounded crisis? Well, first of all, flexibility and funding is very important for some of these programs, you know, they'll just say, well, just for testing. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't allow for you to hire someone to test. And obviously this has, you know, shifted everyone's practices and business models and all these other things. And so we do need to be able to hire people. We do need to be able to purchase equipment. We do need to be able, you know, the way that the IHS integrated care model works is where there'll be a pod of three or four people, you know, behavior health specialists or nurses, 
in a little pod so that they're all together, which was nice before COVID-19. But now with COVID-19 and the need for social distancing, you have to completely change all your facilities to allow for that distancing. And so infrastructure funds have become an immediate urgency because, you know, not only are you trying to adapt to telehealth services, which, you know, some of our patients are fine with, but others are not, but trying to make sure everyone stays safe. And so infrastructure funding is a huge problem that we're hearing all throughout, as well as behavior health funding. And I can imagine it's similar across the nation where behavior health just plummeted with COVID-19. And so, you know, from all of our programs, we're hearing not only the needs of the patients, but the needs of the staff um, for people who've lost their loved ones or, or dealing with it themselves. And how do you know, how do you go about that? And so behavior health has become a very urgent need as well to be able to kind of help um, provide more access to those services. Um, as the need has, you know, and sometimes threefold, not only for behavioral health, but domestic violence services. So, you know, there's a lot of funding there. Now there's an issue as well where I think, like, corporations or foundations can come in because some of our patients need broadband and they need cell phones with video. Um, and those are things that is, you can't really, you know, under government regulations, you can't really purchase. But if someone needs their medication and doesn't have anyone to call or if someone, you know, is um, really struggling mentally and doesn't have the ability to do behavior health services, that's really going to impact our people. Um, not to mention people who have had to lose their jobs. They don't have rent. They don't have rent money. They don't have electricity. They don't have food. These are things that the government technically under their current regulations can't pay for for, but, you know, other flexible funding can. And so we did partner actually with Johns Hopkins to develop a fund for those more flexible needs. But there's definitely a large need out there that we need to, you know, be able to address as well to make sure that we don't just now increase homelessness and, you know, those other issues. Francis, urban indigenous organizations are vital foundations for urban Native American populations. Are we seeing any particular COVID-19 hotspots, severe deficits of infrastructure and resources that are so crucial for urban indigenous organizations to provide those economic, social, and cultural resources that are so vital to urban Native American populations? So in infrastructure, all of our facilities are having a hard time. But in terms of hotspots, um, our Santa, our Santa um, Clara facility has been um, has kind of been the epicenter there. It's, you know, they still have a 13 percent test positive rate when the national average is about 10 percent. So that's definitely a hot spot. You know, Arizona is starting to bloom quite a bit in terms of um, COVID cases, and we have three urban programs in Arizona. Um, So that's definitely, you know, starting to grow as well. And that was Stacey Crevier of the Algonquian First Nations, Executive Director of the National Council of Urban Indian Health, speaking on how COVID-19 is impacting Native American urban populations across the United States. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Otherwise, no 
bullet in the back cause he wouldn't stop Shot like a dog and left to rot Now it's zero hour on the tower clock Whose streets are streets on every motherfucking block Outlining your neighborhoods and chalk Whose streets are streets on every suburban block What could be the blind must see? What could be the blind must see? The song Black Lives Matter by Atslan Underground here on American Indian Airwaves. In the next segment of today's program, we go to the heart of Chiapas in the nation state of Mexico, where earlier this month, Mexico's President Lopez Obrador officially inaugurated the construction of the $8 billion, 948-mile Maya Train Railroad Project an infrastructural project that will link cities and towns in five southeastern states or the entire Yucatan Peninsula for tourism, transportation, and economic purposes. The Maya Train Railroad project commences in the heart of Chiapas, where indigenous peoples and the Zapatista Army of National Liberation is in total opposition of the project. In this next segment here on American Indian Airwaves, Marcus Lopez and Fabiana Hirsch speak with Richard Stoller Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University on the EZLN's opposition to the Maya Train project. Uh, since the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO as he's known by his initials, was uh, uh, took office about a year and a half ago, uh, his signature project has been what he insists on calling the Mayan train, which is actually a kind of offensive term because it's not by and for Mayan peoples at all. It's a mega project that's being imposed on Mayan peoples. And uh, I can talk a little bit more about the, the context, but it's, it's one part of what seems to be a fully neoliberal or market-oriented, global market-oriented strategy uh, of the president. So in that sense, even though he campaigned as somehow dramatically different from anything Mexico had ever seen before, he's following a very similar path uh, in terms of his so-called development strategies. And as you pointed out correctly, it has devastating implications for native communities in Mexico, for the environment. So uh, this project uh, would be to build a train uh, primarily for tourist purposes 
uh, on a 900-mile path uh, from Palenque, the Mayan site in the southeast Mexican state of Chiapas, all the way up to the various Mayan sites uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula. And there's already precedent for this kind of mega project in the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, Cancun, the great big um, luxury tourist development project of previous Mexican governments. And so we already know what this means. It means that indigenous people are going to have to give up their land for hotels, uh, transportation networks, and if they're lucky, get menial jobs in the uh, tourist industry. And what Cancun also brought, that model of development, was kind of opening up that whole region to uh, transnational uh, drug organizations, criminal organizations. So this does not bode well for indigenous communities along uh, this route. It's going to have devastating impact on indigenous peoples, communities, environment. And uh, in order to have a, a project like this in indigenous territories under international law, governments are required to go through a process uh, known as free, prior, and informed consent, uh, consulting with the indigenous communities, or FPIC for short. So what the government did, since they're so intent on this project, is they pretended to have a consultation. It was a sham consultation. They consulted with less than 3% of the indigenous peoples on the affected route of this uh, train. They didn't invite any of the traditional indigenous representatives to participate in the process. And the government claims that something like 92% of the people that they chose to consult uh, supported this uh, project. But it was definitely not in accordance with the free prior and informed consent requirements. And that's a requirement uh, under Convention 169 of the International Labor Organization that describes the rights of indigenous uh, peoples and tribal peoples all over the world. And Mexico ratified the, that convention in 1990. And it also has been upheld in the 2007 United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, so the government is just trampling on the rights of indigenous peoples. Uh, there was recently a study by um, anthropologist Giovanna Gasparello uh, of the three uh, states that would be involved in, this, in the route of this uh, train project, uh, the northern part of the southeast state of Chiapas in, um, uh, in Mexico, and the states of Quintana Roo and Campeche on the Yucatan Peninsula. And according to that study, uh, some 40% of the lands where the project uh, would be located are nature areas. So it's going to be devastating to some of the most biodiverse uh, regions of Mexico. And the people living in that region, uh, in the population in those three uh, uh, states, have a, uh, a poverty rate of 33% extreme poverty populations in the affected areas. Um, so this is what the government is calling development, but it's really uh, exploitation and trampling on the rights of indigenous peoples. Which some would argue that there's, in fact, the president of Mexico has done exactly this. Argue that how are you going to get people out of poverty if you don't provide jobs and development? So what do you well, say? Uh, we've heard this trickle-down argument before in other contexts, and uh, we know who gets trickled on. Um, and so that's what's going to uh, happen again here. I think it's useful to step back from this specific mega project and look at the larger context of the development strategy, so-called development strategy of the current administration, which continues previous administrations. So, for example, the um, not so new anymore, but uh, the, the president, uh, AMLO, uh, appointed as his chief of staff, 
Alfonso Romo, who's an agro-industrialist, and one of his uh, big projects uh, already was responsible for draining groundwater from the Yucatan uh, region for private profit. And when uh, Romo was appointed, he promised to make Mexico an investment paradise. So what's a paradise for investors is a nightmare for indigenous peoples. Um, so one part of this uh, family of, of projects is the creation of what are called special economic zones. And what's special about them is that uh, wealthy, the largest capitalists, global capitalists, uh, get tax breaks and other concessions to attract the foreign investment and make it into an investor uh, paradise. But that's not so special for the people who have desperate needs in those areas. Another major project along these lines is the Trans-Isthmian Corridor, the Isthmus, the narrow stretch of land in Oaxaca, in southwest Mexico that connects the state of Chiapas to other parts to the west is uh, an area that's in the sights of the so-called development planners. Right after AMLO was elected, he wrote to uh, the occupant of the U.S. White House and promised him that he was going to take advantage of the strategic location of this strip of national territory to unite the Pacific with the Atlantic. Uh, so basically, he's saying that that part of the national territory is going to be turned over to the interests of global capital that want to facilitate commerce from Asia to the East Coast ports of the United States. So it is governments subsidizing the largest, wealthiest uh, corporations. So that project would involve a bullet train, massive deep water ports on either side of the isthmus of Tehuantepec and in the state of, of Oaxaca. It affects 11 different indigenous groups who live in that uh, region, uh, primarily in, in Oaxaca. And that's the most biodiverse region of Mexico as well. And 40% of Mexico's total water supply is in that region that would be affected by the uh, trans-Isthmian uh, corridor. So that's another example. Uh, AMLO rushed to sign the new NAFTA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and has been creating new free trade zones in the northern border region of Mexico and in the southern Mexican region as well, an area with a high concentration of indigenous peoples and peasant communities as well. He's moving to propose a new agrarian law that would further gut the agrarian reform of the Mexican Revolution and privatize the ejidos, the communal lands that make up more, more than half of Mexican territory. Um, and then to enforce all this, he's creating a new armed unit. Um, he has created it called the Mexican National Guard, which he had promised during his campaign would be under civilian control. And the first thing he did was appoint an active duty military general to head it. And supposedly that's to fight crime, but most of the units have been deployed in areas in and around the Zapatista autonomous territories of Chiapas as another intimidation of indigenous people who dare to uh, raise their heads and govern themselves. All this, this attitude toward indigenous people is, uh, is part of AMLO's very paternalistic approach, uh, where he claims, oh, we're doing this for you. Uh, we're not going to consult you properly, but we're going to bring you developments all for your own good. Don't worry your heads about it. And this is consistent with his revival of uh, an old philosophy in Mexico known as indigenismo, indigenism, that sort of had its heyday in the mid-20th century. And AMLO actually recreated a new um, institute called the National Institute for Indigenous Peoples, INPI, by its uh, initials in Spanish. Uh, it's got a very assimilationist philosophy. The idea is it's a, a government institute to help help, in quotation marks, indigenous people 
assimilate and become Mexicans, meaning become non-indigenous people, essentially give up their um, identity. And he appointed uh, as the head of this new institute, Adolfo Regino, who's the former Secretary of Indigenous Affairs of the state of, of Oaxaca under the notorious corrupt Governor Gavino Cue, and who dedicated himself to demobilizing and co-opting indigenous and other social movements when he was uh, in that post. And so the first thing this new institute has done is to eliminate something that was called the Basic Infrastructure Program for Indigenous Communities. And they did a bait and switch. Once they created this institute that was supposed to be attending to the needs of indigenous people, then the first new year of the, of the budget, they cut the budget of the institute 40% uh, for this year. So it's all window dressing. Even when AMLO was inaugurated, he insisted on being inaugurated with a kind of, you know, very visible, supposedly indigenous ceremony, um, which, you know, indigenous people were not consulted and, and it was not a very participatory affair. It was something that he wanted to put on a show and claim to care about the needs of indigenous people. So um, it's a rough ride um, and there's uh, there's plenty of opposition. Uh, so uh, that opposition will be more and more visible going forward. Fabiana, the question of, and Richard, the question of how do we deconstruct this mega project because it's painted as an ecological sustainability and good for the future. We'll start with Richard and then I want to also hear from Fabiana. What are thoughts on that for this massive mega project that goes through? And I'm looking at a map here. You already mentioned Pelinque, Campiche, Marida, Cacun. Tulum, the uh, um, Bacalar and Calakmul area, which is a whole, that whole peninsula area, that whole sticks out if people look at a map of Mexico. But this is richly an area of full of not only the species and flora and fauna and forest and environment, indigenous people have been there for millennium time immemorial. Richard, how do you combat the argument which almost a lot of the supporters are saying that it's good for the environment. Tourism is good for the environment. Please, Richard, some of your words. Uh-huh. That's a great question, Marcus. I mean, how to push back, how to fight against this. Um, just two days ago, there was a, a tiny temporary victory in the resistance. The indigenous Chol people in the northern part of the state of Chiapas, where the Mayan train route would start, successfully filed a legal challenge to the phase one construction that would have started there. Uh, and a Mexican federal judge just stopped the the construction on the rather narrow grounds that this is going to uh, create a health risk in a time of pandemic. But the the legal case will continue as the the challenge broadens and includes the violation of the right to consultation. But legal strategy is only one prong. Really, grassroots mobilization is um, probably going to be more important in the in the long run in fighting uh, this. Uh, Uh, logic that's imposed from above on indigenous peoples. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves with Marcus Lopez and Faviana Hirsch interviewing Richard Stuller Schulk, who's professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He's speaking on the $8 billion, 948-mile Mayan train project that will be built throughout the southern Yucatan Peninsula, throughout the nation-state of Mexico, and through the heart of Chiapas, where indigenous peoples and the EZLN are in opposition of the project. And now back to the interview. So the National Indigenous Congress of Mexico, the CNI, which was kind of 
formed out of the inspiration of the Zapatista Rebellion, the rebellion that was in uh, 94, and then in 95, this National Indigenous Congress was formed. And then just uh, in 2018, in the context of the last presidential election, uh, the indigenous peoples of the entire country that are represented in this um, CNI indigenous groups in Mexico is one part of the strategy. Uh, the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, the AZLN, has also been clear in denouncing and uh, warning that they're not going to allow this train to go through. And so uh, Subcommander Moises said in commenting on this um, uh, strategy, he said the overseers and the foremen change, but the owners of the finca remain the same. Uh, so he's really pointing out that don't get your hopes up because AMLO talks a good talk and claims to care about indigenous people. And then at the grassroots level, lots and lots of indigenous people and other uh, land and territory defenders have been rising up, organizing, doing civil disobedience, uh, various kinds of campaigns, and uh, it's cost them their lives in many cases. So Samir Flores, for instance, was a Nahuatl uh, leader who was an opponent of what was called the Morelos Integral Project, another of these mega projects with thermoelectric and gas pipeline and other energy projects uh, in the state of Morelos in the central part of the country. And he was assassinated in um, February of last year. And indigenous groups have continued to demand a real investigation, which AMLO promised and it's never happened. And AMLO called the, the opponents of this uh, mega project in, in Morelos far left radicals. Uh, so um, he is trying to criminalize, denigrate uh, anyone who stands up. And overall, over 100 land and territory defenders have been killed in Mexico in the last decade, most of them indigenous people. And last August, the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination denounced uh, the Mexican government for its failure to respect the FPIC, the right of free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous communities. So. Uh, ignoring the consent uh, process that's legally required, threatening and criminalizing indigenous defenders of their, their territory requires a tremendous courage, and we're seeing it at the grassroots level on the part of indigenous communities in uh, pushing back. And they, of course, need the solidarity of the international community because we're all interconnected. We share this planet. We share uh, Turtle Island, Ayala. So I think these are all parts of the strategies that we're seeing to try to uh, fight against the uh, deadly logic of global capital. I just wanted to add a, a relatively short point to amplify some of what Rich was saying, which is it's so interesting on one level, although that may not be the best word, when you see the continuation that AMLO who's supposed to be, in some people's eyes, a so-called progressive president in Mexico. But he's an absolute continuation of everything that came before. In fact, in some ways, perhaps more dangerous because of what we often know in the U.S. context as a forked tongue, which is speaking out of two sides of your mouth and a level of hypocrisy that's outrageous. The other aspect is, you know, he's committed to development in a very big way, as you were describing, Rich. The other part I was remembering is these rebellions against the idea of taking indigenous Mayan lands and creating tourism has been going on for quite some time. And in Chiapas, I remember one of the things that Marcos and some of the Zapatistas talked about earlier on was, we don't want to be thrown off our lands in order for ecotourism to, you know, for people to come out in their four-wheel drive Jeeps, destroy the countryside, 
and we end up selling trinkets on the road for the tourists. And in many ways, I feel like that kind of sums up some of what we're dealing with here in the most crude and grotesque kind of way. I agree. Richard, when you mentioned the death rate, we know that Mexico is highest death rate for journalists, indigenous people happen. You mentioned that not too long ago. And also the woman, I forgot her name, forgive me, from Honduras, the leader of the mega project that got assassinated. Berta Cáceres. Thank you. We see a pattern going on. Do you think, and I think I want to mention this to our listeners, this Mayan train of of the, the Mexican chain of indigenous oppression can mean lives being lost and regions being lost to native people. You talked about that a little bit. Could you go into that a little bit more, please? Sure, Uh, people's livelihoods are lost when they're displaced from their land, but also um, people's culture and identity as a community is lost. And so in a sense, that means that as a people, uh, they are being assassinated, if not individually, which is also happening, but collectively. So the United Nations Convention Against Genocide uh, talks about uh, cultural destruction, destruction of the identities uh, of peoples. So at all different levels, this is a, a deadly approach. And I wanted to pick up on something that Fabiano was saying a minute ago about tourism and you know, being reduced to selling objects by the side of the road. So people's culture is being commodified and trivialized and appropriated. Ancestral uh, identity and, and traditions is being converted into a commodity so that uh, people in this region can be made the object of a colonial gaze uh, stared at um, by uh, tourists. Um, so all of that is, you know, it's destruction. And to call all this development is also sort of missing the point. And uh, to thinking about the bigger picture of the implications of this sort of clash of, of worldviews, uh, there was a, an activist uh, leader from the Mayan Alliance for the Protection of Bees uh, in the Kalakmul uh, region that's on the, that's one of the proposed stops on the, the Mayan train, uh, who said, We want our people to be part of these projects, but on the premise of our conception of development. That does not mean amassing of billions of pesos, but the attainment of a dignified life. Uh, So for many indigenous people, this concept of a dignified life, or buen vivir, as it's sometimes translated into Spanish, sort of a good life, a decent life, is a way of living that's defined by peoples themselves, that's not defined by corporate interests and by the the wealthy. Um, So I think that the, the way out of this is to really start listening to uh, the wisdom of uh, what's sometimes referred to as otros saberes, other ways of knowing, other epistemologies, ancestral knowledge of indigenous people that is in danger also of being uh, extinguished uh, by the oppression that's been going on since the, the colonial uh, era. So the people who have sustained life on Abyayala on the, in the Americas uh, since long before the European invaders, Uh, ought to be able to have a say in what kind of life uh, they need going forward. And you're listening to an interview with Richard Stoller-Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He's speaking on indigenous peoples from Chiapas and the EZLN, the Zapatista National Liberation Army's opposition 
to the Mayan Train Project, an $8 billion, 948-mile high-speed train that will run through the traditional territories of the indigenous peoples throughout the southern Yucatan Peninsula in the nation-state of Mexico. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. In the final segment of today's show here on American Indian Airwaves, we return back to the interview with Marcus Lopez and Fabiana Hirsch, speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He's speaking on indigenous peoples from Chiapas and the National Liberation Zapatista Army, or the EZLN's opposition to the $8 billion, 948-mile Mayan train project, if constructed, would run through the traditional territories of the indigenous peoples throughout the southern Yucatan Peninsula in the nation-state of Mexico. And now, back to the interview. We've been discussing the this whole issue of what I totally agree with you is a misnomer, but it's called the Mayan train, because Mayan peoples did not choose to have a train. Uh, <laughs> But nevertheless, from the point of view of the current president of Mexico, who I think we'd have to say is very cynical in terms of what rights indigenous people truly have in Mexico and probably throughout the world. But his project, this mega project, has been so damaging, as you were explaining earlier. And I think maybe we could return to some points you were just making about the cultural implications of what can happen because oftentimes, especially Mexico is so far out of the purview of people living inside the borders of the U.S. They don't always think about places that seem so far away. Quintana Roo, where is that? You know, the Yucatan Peninsula, we know what a peninsula is, but people may not have had the chance to go there or Chiapas, places like this. And the level of devastation in terms of land, people's culture, maybe you could zero in on some of that to give a picture of what that looks like. We're not just talking about the elimination of actual people, but the threatening of an entire way of life. Sure. You know, I mentioned before that this is an extremely biodiverse, rich region that we're talking about. Um, and so there, it really is 
a living part of our planet Earth, and people and, and nature are an interconnected whole. And so the destruction of nature is also the destruction of people. We're seeing this with President Bolsonaro, uh, the uh, right-wing president of Brazil, who has been uh, you know, opening up the Amazon region and who has made some uh, very racist and disparaging remarks about the indigenous people who live in that uh, region in the Amazon. And uh, the Amazon has been referred to as the lungs of the world because, you know, we're all breathing the air produced by the trees in the Amazon forest. Um, and similarly, we can't afford to zero in on the most biodiverse areas of the world and uh, destroy them for our entertainment, which is what these mega projects are doing for entertainment and for private profit. Um, so uh, a lot of the mega projects are what are referred to as extractive industries. Um, so extracting minerals, hydrocarbons, petroleum, um, energy in, in various uh, forms. And you can't just keep sucking the resources out of a land and leave it dry and dead. Uh, that's not a sustainable way of being. Um, so these otros saberes, other knowledges, other ways of knowing that I referred to before that indigenous people have been sustaining, uh, have to do with a, a much more integral and sustainable concept of human beings in connection with Mother Earth. So this is really the, the larger dimension of the, the battle. Um, and then ideologically, to refer to this as development and to say that we are going to tell you uh, what's good for you, what's going to be good for your livelihood, and even what your identity is so that we can commodify it and sell it to tourists, that is really a bizarre concept. Um, when the Zapatistas rose up in rebellion in January of 1994, and uh, eventually the government sat down at the negotiating table because of the uprising of civil society and sympathy with the, the Zapatista movement, the Zapatistas proclaimed their right to self-governance, to autonomy, uh, to defining for themselves who they are and what they want. And the first table of negotiation uh, was indigenous rights and culture. And uh, after you know, two long years of, of negotiating, finally the San Andres Accords were signed, recognizing the rights of indigenous people to their identity and their, uh, their culture and resources. But then when the government realized the implications of what it really meant to recognize the autonomous self-definition of identity and use of resources and culture and, and territories, they began backpedaling. And finally, when the implementing legislation of the San Andres Accords went through the Mexican Congress many years later, they had totally changed the content of it and gutted it of any meaning. And the Zapatistas made one last attempt to get the outside world to listen. They organized a caravan and a march all the way to Mexico City and Commander uh, Esther of the uh, Zapatista uh, Army of National Liberation addressed the Mexican Congress in an historic address but they didn't want to hear. Uh, so the, the, the Zapatistas have been regularly posing this sort of wake-up call, and it's certainly resonating with indigenous communities, and we see that in the formation of the Indigenous Council of Government, this sort of parallel government for Mexico, and it's resonating with many people around the world. And you would think that now, in this time when we are in uh, a crisis of global climate change and a, and a global pandemic, that we would want to rethink uh, our relationship to the planet uh, and our way of being on this earth. Uh, so if there ever was a time to 
maybe put aside uh, a kind of Western-centric, unilaterally imposed view uh, of thinking about so-called development, this would be the time. Richard, you talked about the clash of of worlds, of many worlds, and the Zapatistas talk about this, this uh, capitalist hydra. Oh, and then earlier you talked about how it relates where Mexico as a country passed and so-called accepted the 169 ILO agreement, mm -hmm. and at the same time, um, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples from the United Nations, Mexico as a country adopted it as a document. And then you have this project, this mega project, this so-called Mayan train. There seems to be a major contradictions here, you know. <laughs> Talk about that in relationship to what Fabiana talked about, extracted industries, and you did too, Richard. Mm -hmm. This major, and people don't talk about it enough, in North America, they don't talk about it now, with the pipelines and extracted industry, the mention within that context, murdered and missing indigenous women and girls, the man camps and the camps, the people that will happen, if even part of it goes through can you relate those two stories within your observation? Um, I think that we, in the United States, began to get a little bit of a sense of uh, what these extractive industries really meant uh, with the showdown over the Dakota Access Pipeline and the degree of force that the uh, private capitalist interests and their state protectors were willing to use to suppress the resistance. So this is not uh, unique to any one place. We're seeing uh, in the, the era of globalization of capital and expansion of sort of predatory capital and states that either are looking the other way or that are actively allied with this, um, this project, this project of death. And indigenous people have been in the forefront of defending the land, defending the territory, and speaking up. And uh, their voices are either silenced or ignored. Um, the Zapatistas, for example, have used silence strategically in order to make the point, you can't silence us, we'll choose when to speak and when we're going to reserve our words. And in many indigenous communities and, and traditions, the word has a, a sacred meaning, but many colonial and neo-colonial governments are very happy to issue lots of nice sounding words and do exactly the opposite, as you were pointing out before. And I think we're seeing that in these development plans of the AMLO administration in, uh, in Mexico. So the words of resistance uh, that we're seeing coming from the, the communities in Chiapas, in uh, the Yucatan uh, Peninsula, maybe are, are not in a language that we're accustomed to hearing, but uh, we need to listen harder and pay attention to the wisdom that is coming from these communities. And, you know, again, if we look at what happened in the, the Cancun uh, mega tourist development project, we see all the negative consequences of turning people into commodities and putting them on exhibit as though they were in a zoo. And the economic livelihood opportunities that are left are, as, um, as Fabiana put it earlier, selling trinkets by the side of the road to the, the tourists or other degrading forms of, of work and, and survival that are required when other livelihood is destroyed. So for people who are rooted in the land, rooted, for example, in community-based 
uh, local agriculture to come in with agribusiness projects like the chief of staff of, of AMLO, the agro-industrial uh, developer. Uh, one of AMLO's big so-called development projects also is to plant something like a million hectares of, you know, kind of an agribusiness project of uh, fruit trees and lumber, uh, wood, and all this is displacing community agriculture, survival, and pushing people off the edge of survival and the way that they have survived. So survival is linked to the identity of, of who people are. So these are our projects of death. Um, also in the, the Yucatan Peninsula, once the infrastructure uh, was laid and everything is about global commerce, well, the big commodity that is transiting through Mesoamerica these days uh, is drugs and of course, uh, exploited people, the, um, the trade of the uh, the coyotes and the uh, the people smugglers, um, so it's leaving people vulnerable to transnational organized criminal networks. Many indigenous communities have felt that the state has sold them down the river, and they've had to organize their own community police and community defense. And then the government cracks down on the indigenous community uh, police and say, "Oh, you can't do that." Uh, so in Guerrero and uh, in Western Mexico and other places, indigenous people have been quite innovative in saying. Well, if you can't defend us, we are going to have to defend ourselves to you know, make our lives possible. Similarly, the, the Zapatistas said, well, you know, we're not seceding from Mexico, but we're gonna show you in our corner of Mexico what a sustainable way of living would be. Uh, what the uh, Maya Tzeltal people call lequil kushlejal, a kind of good way of life. So the, the positive aspect of all this is the way people are resisting the creativity of their resistance um, and the way that people have gotten back in touch with uh, sometimes uh, forgotten or submerged ways of knowing that are really a, a key to life going forward on the planet. Marcus, you were mentioning the fact that Mexico was a signatory to the the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and it's clear when you see the level of deviousness, which is not a strong enough term, but of the current Mexican regime, which follows so much in the footsteps of previous regimes, except in some ways more dangerous because of the mask that it wears. And we're not talking about the Zapatista mask. We're talking about another kind of mask of utter and total hypocrisy and cynicism. So it becomes it becomes an agreement of Mexico with the UN purely on the most superficial possible demonstration of something that when people see this, you know, it's almost like an art form, the sense in which they develop these covers for what are such sinister projects. So, you know, somebody like President Lopez Obrador kissing the earth and thanking Mother Earth and appearing to be so dedicated to the lives and economic well-being and prosperity of indigenous peoples, and with the other hand, being totally ready to destroy people. And I just want to mention one quick thing. When AMLO ran for president and lost, I believe it was 2008, if I'm correct, or 2006? 2006. 2006. At that time, I remember the Zapatista saying something very important. Whether it's a right hand or left hand candidate, it's the same body. That's a good point. That's why the Zapatistas referred to the capitalist Hydra, the many-headed monster of mythology. So um, this is not about AMLO. 
certainly he's representing uh, a system. He's representing global capitalism. He's representing a system that values profit over human life and human dignity. Uh, you know, governments will do and say anything that is required to sustain their power and privilege and the profits that they're uh, protecting. So the previous governments in Mexico signed the San Andres Accords, for instance, after the Zapatista uprising, when they were pressed by not just the uprising, but by the groundswell of support and sympathy for the, the Zapatistas. Oh, yeah, you want to uh, sign an agreement on indigenous rights and culture? Sure, we'll sign. But then when it came to actual implementation, they turned around and did exactly the opposite. So, you know, and this is a, a lesson for us in the U.S. as well. It's grassroots organization that makes the difference. Um, it's not trusting in a leader from above. It's not trusting in a document that's signed. It's not trusting in a government or a law. It's Those things are only um, as useful as the organized strength of the grassroots um, movement behind them. And finally, Richard, we know that indigenous people's history has been a history of genocide, exploitation, murder, so on and so forth. And the basis of our racial inequality is the basis of indigenous people's history within this hemisphere about, about this genocide. But within that, in your last comments, talk about the neoliberal approach that you been presenting in bits and pieces, and then the judge's decision, latest decision on this uh, so-called Mayan train. Uh, this concept of neoliberalism is an, an updated version of the old philosophy of economic liberalism, which is based on the concept of liberating or freeing up the forces of the market, which means capitalists, from any kind of government regulation or intervention, which means public interest, the, the general, the people. And so the neo part of it, what's new in this market-oriented philosophy is that now the market is global. Um, and so in a global market, that means that ordinary people can be pitted against each other in different parts of the world by global capital and forced to sort of bargain down their wages, their working conditions, their rights. Uh, so this is what's referred to sometimes as the race to the bottom, as global capital threatens to pick up and move a production facility and destroy jobs and livelihoods in one corner of the earth and go to somewhere where people are even more desperate. And governments have become essentially just adjuncts uh, to these powerful global corporations. In fact, if you look at the 100 largest economic units in the world, um, some, over 60 of them are not governments at all. They're corporations. The moment of silence is over. And that was Richard Stuller Schulk speaking on the indigenous peoples of Chiapas and the EZLN's opposition to the Mayan train, an $8 billion, 952-mile high-speed train, if constructed, that would run through the southern Yucatan Peninsula and through the traditional indigenous territories of the people of Chiapas. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Stacey Bullen, Francis Crevier, and Richard Stoller Schulk. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Atslan Underground, and the band Blackfire. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds No, 
Must be heard.